Well, I said it in the first service, and I'll say it again. That rich prayer is sermon enough for us this morning. Uh, thank you, Renee. Um, I failed to mention in the earlier service uh, where my accent is from. And so I hear there's a tally going around. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. But I heard some people say I was from South Africa. Uh, some suggested Canada. Uh, I heard somebody say Scotland. Um, I'm from Ireland is where I'm from. Um, and I'm very happy to be with you this morning. And if I was from Canada, and if I was from South Africa, the same spirit that is at work there is at work in Ireland and is at work among us this morning. <clears throat> and so in light of that, let's go to God in prayer together. Lord, as we once again open your word, we are thankful for the promise that you are among us and within us through the power of the Spirit. We pray that you would speak anew, that you would move us to be the kind of people you desire us to be in this world. And Father, we come with hungry hearts to receive, and we trust that you will give us your word in a powerful and mighty way this morning. We give you thanks in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Our text for this morning is from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open because I may jump around, I will jump around from Acts 1 to the latter parts of Acts 2. So just bear that in mind. But our text for this morning is Acts 2, 1 to 21. Let's read this together. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it each, that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the, the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. 
and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is the word of the Lord this morning. Let's practice that. We're at Hope. So I, I'm an intern over at Hope, and whenever we, we read the scripture, we say, this is the word of the Lord, and everyone says, thanks be to God. Let's practice that together. This is the word of the Lord. Yes, thank you. So we live in a culture that is obsessed with, can you guess what it is? The dream. Finding the dream, achieving the dream, living the dream, like the bumper sticker I saw on the back of a car at Starbucks the other day. We are inundated with videos and magazines and television programs that show us the dream we could be living. The motivational section of the New York, New York bestsellers best list, the New York Times bestsellers list, is a plethora of books on how to find and live your dreams. There's the American dream. You guys know about that one, being American, right? There are protesters in the streets these days who call themselves the dreamers. We live in a culture that's preoccupied with what the Everly Brothers once called the dream. Dream, 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 dream. John Lennon was a dreamer. Some said he was a dreamer, but he wasn't the only one. Martin Luther King, he had a dream, remember? And that girl from Les Mis, if you're the musical type, she dreamed a dream in times gone by. And if you're not the musical type, Russell Crowe in the movie Gladiator, he dreamed a dream, and that dream was Rome. We live in a culture where everybody's dreaming up something. We have daydreams, night dreams, personal life dreams, family dreams, national dreams, social political dreams. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. When the Spirit descended upon those gathered at Pentecost, in a powerful and tangible and new way. Peter, referencing the ancient words of the prophet Joel, spoke about those who would dream. In that day, declares the Lord, I will pour out my spirit on all men and women, the old and the young, and they will see visions. They will prophesy and they will dream dreams. When God poured out the spirit on all people, there came with the Spirit a new ability for the people of God to dream new dreams, to participate in the momentous movement of the gospel's advance. With the Spirit came the ability to dream, and not just any old dream, but to dream for the kingdom, to share in Christ's restoring of this world. And just as in our day everybody's dreaming up something, so too in Jesus' day were they dreaming up something. The disciples had a dream. The Israelites had a dream. But it wasn't this Christ redeeming the world kingdom kind of dream. No, it was a narrow, self-absorbed, nearsighted kind of kingdom dream. They couldn't quite see beyond their own noses. And what do I mean? Well, you see, the Jews had a vision of what their future Messiah would look like. The Jews had a national dream of what would happen when their Messiah would come. And this vision, 
This dream of messianic expectancy is summarized in the question that the disciples asked Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, and I'd encourage you to go there. I told you I was going to jump around. In Acts 1, verse 6, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Or in today's terms, hey, Lord, are you going to make Israel great again? These disciples had been with Jesus roughly three years. They had heard him preach about the nature of the kingdom. They had seen Jesus indiscriminately heal, eat with and care for the marginalized and the sick. They had seen him die on a Roman cross, be laid in a tomb, and rise again. And yet after all this, the disciples had the audacity to ask Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And we can still hear the echo of Jesus' palm meeting his forehead in frustration at the disciples' continuous ability to miss the point because Jesus didn't come to just to restore Israel. That's the nearsighted, self-absorbed dream. It, Jesus came to restore the world. And that's the comprehensive kingdom dream that we taste at Pentecost, where 3,000 people from among the many nations gathered become followers of Jesus. You see, there was a belief among the Jews that when the Messiah would come, the nation of Israel would no longer be subject to foreign rule. The restoration of the kingdom of Israel would be their independence from foreign oppressors they would finally get out from underneath these Romans. And not just that, but they would be restored to international prestige as the greatest among the nations once again, with a David-like anointed one as their political and military deliverer. Israel had a self-focused, not seeing beyond themselves dream of national and political restoration that would come to fruition with the Messiah. And so this question, that the disciples asked Jesus is not a new conversation because the disciples had long thought that Jesus was somehow going to overthrow the Romans and rule as their earthly king. So much so that in Luke 22, the disciples argue about who's going to have the most authority when Jesus is king, who's going to have the highest seat because they thought with the restoration of Israel's sovereignty that they would rise to the top as members of Jesus' inner entourage. But this nearsighted dream of Israel and the disciples was not realized in Jesus in the way that the disciples in Israel had hoped. The Messiah had come in Jesus, yet instead of wielding a sword to overthrow the Romans like a warrior king of old, he was bound and led to a humiliating death. Instead of overthrowing the Romans, they threw him in a grave convicted as guilty. And instead of glory, honor, and prestige, Jesus was poor, socially outcasted, and humiliated. Jesus was not the Messiah that the Israelites had dreamed up. But Jesus is the Messiah. And the kingdom he is establishing is not like the kingdoms of this world. It's like heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Christ's kingdom will restore Israel. You better believe it. But as Acts 1.8 tells us, it will restore Israel and Judah and Samaria and all people to the ends of the earth. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Christ's kingdom is bigger than Israel's national aspirations. It's cosmic. And when the Spirit of God was poured out at Pentecost, followers of believers were given the power to share in this cosmic restoration process. The near-sighted Jewish dream was replaced with a far-reaching, comprehensive dream whereby every nation, tribe, language, and tongue will bow before the throne of Christ and worship. With the Spirit came the passing of Israel's nearsighted dream and the power to enter a global one. And we should pause here for a moment because it's easy for us 2,000 years later to criticize the disciples for missing the point, for having a nearsighted dream where Jesus only matters for them and for no one else. Because you know what? Sometimes I think we do the exact same thing. Sometimes our dreaming for the kingdom is too nearsighted, too self-absorbed, too close to our own noses that we trip over our own feet. I've been amazed since coming to the United States and doing ministry here, how many people have commented on my clothing. And I realize when I say that, many of you all look at what I'm wearing, and that's okay. But I wore shirts, a shirt today. I wore slacks, and I wore nice shoes because I've learned my lesson. But you should know that I'm more than happy to preach in a nice pair of Levi's and a pair of Nikes, which I'm getting the sense would have went down pretty well today, which is good to know. But I had a woman tell me once, and I quote, I struggle to enjoy your sermon because the bottom half of your body was covered in denim. No joke. It sounds humorous and facetious, but it illuminates our nearsightedness. You see, for many of us, dreaming for the kingdom doesn't go beyond creating these perfect little church spaces where we all wear the right clothing and sing the right songs the right kind of way, where we all agree on the same things. And if others don't meet the particular status quo of our particular little space, well then, in the words of the woman who criticized my genes, we struggle to appreciate, we struggle to enjoy their contribution. Sometimes people have to be like us before we like them. Sometimes our dreaming for the kingdom doesn't go beyond our own comfort, our own preferences, our own church walls. And we end up looking more like social clubs than we do the vibrant, spirit-filled, diverse community of Acts 2. Sometimes, friends, we have the very same nearsighted tendency as the disciples. During the apartheid in South Africa, white members of the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa wrote a letter requesting that they no longer take the Lord's Supper with black members of their community. The white folks didn't want to break bread and drink the cup around the Lord's table with their black brothers and sisters. And this initiated years of denominational tension and division within the Reformed Church in South Africa. And thanks be to God, there has been years of tireless work to help heal such hearts of division. But this is another example that serves to illuminate the church's capacity to miss the point of the vast dream of a world restored for a nearsighted dream of self-interest. Sometimes, friends, we don't dream for the kingdom, but we miss it. 
and we instead dream for ourselves. Acts 2, verse 1. Our text tells us that the disciples were all together in one place, likely the upper room where Jesus broke bread and drank wine. When they heard, saw, and spoke curious things, they heard what sounded like a violent wind, and we can speculate all morning long on what that wind might have been like. But I imagine it to be similar to the wind that Ezekiel commanded to breathe on the valley of dry bones where suddenly life was given. This wind was akin to the very breath of God, and it was a sound that represented God's power. At Pentecost, God came in power, and then they saw what appeared to be tongues of fire. And again, we can speculate on what that might be. We can wonder. But I imagine that this fire to be the same kind of fire that burned before Moses in a bush, a fire that represented the very presence of God that caused Moses to kick off his shoes and get on his knees and worship. That wind symbolized God's power. That fire symbolized God's presence because at Pentecost, God is among us. And then they began to speak. Galileans, began to proclaim the wonders of God in languages they did not know. The Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the Mesopotamians, the Cappadocians, the Asians, the Egyptians, the Romans, those from many nations under heaven, all heard the wonders of God being proclaimed out of the mouths of Galilean fishermen. And if the wind represented God's power and the fire represented God's presence, then these diverse tongues represented God's promise. A promise given to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 11, 17 to 20, and this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations, and there are many nations gathered at Pentecost. I will gather you back from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you an undivided heart, and I will put a new spirit in them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. This promise of a new spirit being given to the people of God is at Pentecost. And God's promise in Ezekiel is to see the, gather, the scattered gathered. And yes, this is related to the people of Israel and Judah who are scattered throughout the known world because of the Babylonian and Assyrian exile. But this promise is also related to a humanity. Because remember at Babel in Genesis 11, where hu humans tried to build a tower to heaven, and God confused the language of all people, scattering them. Yet here at Pentecost, we see heaven coming down, and not even language divides them. The many nations gathered hear the same message being proclaimed. Pentecost is the great reversal of Babel. It is not just the scattered Israelites who are being gathered back once again to God, but it's a scattered world being gathered once again to God. And this makes sense on Pentecost, because before Pentecost was our Christian holiday, it was one of the Jewish high festivals, also called the Feast of First Fruits. And it was a festival of thanksgiving, 
where the Jews would bring the first fruits of their harvest to the temple as an offering to say thanks to God for his provisions. And that's why there's so many nations gathered in Jerusalem. But on this Pentecost, God had a different harvest in mind because when those gathered experienced the Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel from Peter, 3,000 were added, added to their number. 3,000 were gathered back to God, the first fruits of the Spirit's harvest. With the sowing of the Spirit in tandem with Peter's proclamation of the gospel, there was reaped a harvest of 3,000 believers, as Acts 2.41 tells us. And those gathered back to God on this Pentecost were the first of the great multitude in Revelation 7, a crowd that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne, worshiping the Lamb. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And this is the dream, the dream of seeing a scattered, lost, and broken world gathered once again into the loving embrace of a heavenly Father. This is what the Spirit came to do, and the power and the presence and the promises of God dwell and live in you and me, and we are empowered to bear and pursue the dream as those reconciled to God through the saving work of Jesus Christ. We live in a world, friends, where everybody is dreaming up something. But as those filled with the Spirit, what does it look like for us to dream for the kingdom? Well, I can tell you that it involves all of us. Peter's reference to Joel says it's not just men, it's women. It's not just the young, it's the old. All of us have been invited and empowered to dream new dreams for the kingdom. And it doesn't always involve selling everything we own and moving to impoverished countries, though it might mean that way for some of us. But it can be as simple as the little girl I knew in my previous congregation, who instead of spending her birthday money on herself, bought a meal for a homeless man, believing that the hungry should be fed, the weary should be sheltered, and dreaming of a world where needs are met, much like the church of Acts 2. And dreaming for the kingdom looks like 94-year-old Tony Weller, who would open his home every few weeks to house concerts for up-and-coming jazz musicians. And Tony, at the intermission of each of these concerts, would share a brief reflection of Scripture. And he, he hoped that his, his words of, of meditation on Scripture and his hospitality would be a means by which others would glimpse in a small way Jesus and believe. And dreaming for the kingdom looks like my friend Scott Evans, a university chaplain who constantly engages in interfaith dialogue. And he does it so well that recently he was invited to a Ramadan festival to speak as a committed follower of Jesus to a room full of Muslims. He's doing his best to embody in word and deed Christ in a context that does not know Christ. And dreaming for the kingdom looks to me like the last day of the Calvin Symposium on Worship, where 1,000 of us gathered in all our beautiful diversity and color 
representing 30 plus nations from 30 plus denominations and Christian traditions. Yet we gather together with no separation, no dress code around the table of grace around the communion table to break bread and to share the cup together in a bond of unity that is our shared deliverance in Jesus Christ. Participation in that looks like the kingdom to me. And your prayer looks like the kingdom, looks like dreaming for the kingdom to me. Dreaming of a world where, we, where the Holy Spirit is even at work in Muslim communities, seeking to draw them to Jesus Christ. That's dreaming for the kingdom. What does dreaming for the kingdom look like in your life? In that day, declares the Lord, which is today, friends, I will pour out my spirit on all people, and they will prophesy, and they will see visions, and they will dream dreams. We live in a world where everybody's dreaming up something. But as people of Pentecost, as those reconciled to God through the power of Jesus Christ, as those filled with the Spirit to participate in God's restoring of this world. Friends, it's you and it's me who are truly living the dream. Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you have not abandoned us. We thank you that we're not left to wander this world trying to figure it all out for ourselves. But your generous and powerful and gracious spirit dwells within our hearts, and we know you because of it. And Father, as we seek to be people who help to glorify your name in this world and to advance your kingdom, may you continue to empower us, give us new vision, give us new dreams, to press into places where Christ is not known. Father, give us a capacity where every facet of our lives is an opportunity to glorify your name and advance your kingdom. Give us a passion and a desire and a humility and a care for this world to see it redeemed and gathered once again into the loving embrace of you. Lead us. Guide us, we pray, by your power, your presence, and your promises. And we ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.